Well, let's take our Bibles tonight and open them to our study of the Gospel of John. We find ourselves once again, or beginning right actually tonight, John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Randy and I were away the first part of this last week, and uh, it was a pastor's conference, and someone was asking me what I was preaching through, and I said, well, in the evening we're in the Gospel of John, and and uh, and I, uh, they said, how long have you been been preaching in John? And I said, Randy, how long how long have we been in John? I, I don't I don't know how many years it's been. He said, I think it's been about four years. <laughs> I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, well, I don't I, I don't know. I guess I mean this is tonight is on sermon one hundred and twenty four in the Gospel of John, and I I suppose that that's about four years or more at 52 weeks a year. And we don't get evening service 52 weeks a year preaching. So it's got to be more than four years. So I, I'm thankful for your patience and just your, your willingness to sit through all of this. But I want to begin our time tonight by reading for us uh, John chapter 20, verses 1 to 10. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter therefore also came, following him, and entered the tomb, and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. And so the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, entered then also, and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. And so the disciples went away again to their own homes. Let's just bow our heads and ask the Lord to attend to our time tonight as we look at His Word. Father, we're thankful once again as we open Your Word together to this rich text that You have before us. We're thankful that we can study. We're thankful that we can understand. We're thankful for the truth that You have revealed to us. Lord, we would ask that You would enrich our lives by it, that we would be encouraged by it, challenged by it, and that we would be face to face with the glory of your majesty. We would understand that it is you who have accomplished these things. That you might be honored and glorified that all would believe upon Jesus Christ for salvation. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, without stating the obvious tonight, this passage speaks to really the pinnacle of our salvation, the very apex of why and in what we are saved. It speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And just to remind us of the importance of that, 
I want us to turn for a moment over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because the Apostle Paul clearly states how important the resurrection is for us as believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance that, or first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve, and He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. Some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then also to the apostles. Last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, whom not I am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, If Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, then how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we hoped in Christ in this life only, we of all men, most are most to be pitied. This is the essence of our salvation. And there are some pretty severe consequences if the resurrection did not happen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a falsehood. If it is a fakery, if it is the greatest deception to ever come upon mankind in all of history, there are some very severe consequences. And sadly, many believe that it didn't happen. In Jesus' day, the Sadducees were part of the religious leaders of the day. They didn't believe in the resurrection at all. Many throughout history have had the same idea. And the common excuse that runs throughout it all, the common thread of it all, is that they need proof. That there is no proof. The resurrection has no proof. Proof. Proof is a big issue. It is a principle that we face even in our own lives regularly. 
You and I woke up today and we had proof of many things. In fact, we desire proof in certain things. None of us would fly if we didn't see a plane actually fly. We just wouldn't. We would not drive. We would not eat food. We would not take medicine or trust any other kind of thing without them being proven. There are many who look at the accounting of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and they ask for proof. Show me the proof. Even Thomas, the disciples, wanted proof. Chapter 21 It says, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and he manifested himself in this way. They were together, Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel of Canaan of Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. And Simon Peter said, I am going fishing. So they get in the boat, they go out, they fish all night, they catch nothing. When it was daybreak, Jesus was on the beach. Disciples didn't know it was Jesus. Have you caught any fish? And they say, no. He says, cast your net out on the other side. You'll find something. So they do. Probably just trying to appease this stranger on the beach. And they haul in a great number of fish. And the disciples, therefore, whom Jesus loved, says to Peter, is that the Lord? So when Peter heard it, he jumps in the water in his garment and runs over to Jesus. Jesus in chapter 20 meets his disciples. Verse 19, therefore it was evening that day of the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, there were the disciples for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. The disciple therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Verse 24, Thomas, the one twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples, therefore, were saying to him, we've seen the Lord. And he said to them, unless I see, give me proof. I've got to see it with my own eyes. Unless I see, if I see his hands, if I see the nail prints in his hands, and I put my finger in the place where the nails were, I put my hands in the side, I will, unless I see that, I'm not believing. After eight days, Jesus comes again, and Thomas is with them. Doors are shut. Jesus stands in their midst and says the same thing, peace be with you. And he says to Thomas, reach here your fingers. See my hands? Reach your hand here. Put it in my side. And be not unbelieving, but rather believing. And so here we are reading this account in John chapter 20. And God is giving us proof. God is proving to us the very reality of the fact that he rose from the dead. In fact, Acts chapter 1 says that Jesus gave many convincing signs, many convincing proofs. Luke, writing to Theophilus about Jesus, From the day he began to teach until the day he was taken up, after the Holy Spirit had given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself, verse 3 of chapter 1 of Acts, alive after his suffering, that is the cross. How? 
He presented himself alive by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking things concerning the kingdom of God. He gave them many convincing proofs. The word there in Acts chapter 1 for convincing is the Greek word tekmerion. Tekmerion. It comes from a from a derivative of a word called tekmar, which, which has the idea of the goal. Something that has a fixed limit to it. Something with a fixed limit. In other words, a criterion of certainty is the idea. Something that is absolute and certain. Infallible proof. That's the idea. Jesus gave many infallible proofs that he was alive. Undeniable proof of his liveliness. Undeniable proof that he had the power over death. Undeniable proof that he is the controlling one of all the events that are taking place. Even raising himself from the dead. So I want to begin tonight by looking at the central event here of our salvation. The central event together. Jesus died, was buried, he rose again. Paul says, I delivered that gospel to you. And I want us to look at it not so that we go away just simply believing. Because many of us here are believers already. We believe in the resurrection. And so I want us to go away not simply believing as believers, but I want us to go away solidified in that belief concerning the resurrection. More solid tonight when we leave than when we came in. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, maybe tonight will be your resurrection day. Notice chapter 20 in verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Now we have to ask a question, why? Why was Mary even going to the tomb? Why would Mary go there? Well, I believe she came back to finish what was a hurried burial. She came back to to finish what had been already started previously, the Friday before, it was done quickly by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, who had taken Jesus off the cross. Hurriedly done because of the coming Sabbath on which no one was to do anything. Mary is coming to finish. Finish that which had not been allowed by the Sabbath. So she had to wait until this Sunday. She had to wait till the third day. She had to wait till Sabbath was over. This was the first day of the week, as it says here in chapter 20, verse 1. The first day of the work week. That's how the Jews counted their days. It was the first day of the week. We don't count our days that way. We name our days. We have seven days, and they all have names. But that's not how the Jews did it in their day. They numbered their days. The Sabbath was on the last day of the week. Their days were counted from sunset to sunset. My wife and I remember this vividly when we were in Israel 20 years ago and we were in Jerusalem on a Sabbath. 
We wanted to go out to a store in the evening on that day, and we went down to the store, and all the stores were closed. It was closed. They had been closed for nearly 24 hours. We didn't even realize it. We knew it was a Sabbath. We thought, well, yes, but this is modern day. No, they were closed. They were closed until dusk because it was dusk to dusk. That was the Sabbath. And once dusk hit, it was around 6 o'clock there. Once that hit, the stores flew open and people were standing there waiting to go in. They wanted to get about the business. The city came alive. And so when Sabbath started at dusk on Friday, it ended at dusk on Saturday, and the people were all waiting for those stores to open. And the first day pattern became the norm. It became the norm after Jesus rose from the dead for the people to meet. You notice even here in John chapter 20 and verse 19, when therefore it was evening on that day. What day is that? The first day of the week. Over in verse 26, the same thing. And after eight days again, his disciples were inside. Eight days from the first day of the week would be what? Once again, the next first day of the week. This is the first day of the week again. This is now the pattern when they're together. The eight days had gone by. His disciples are inside. Thomas is now with them. We see this all throughout as we go through. If you go over to Acts chapter 20 and you look at verse 7. Paul traveling around going to Macedonia, going to Greece. And he says in verse 6, We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, and there we stayed seven days. And on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. This is the first day of the week pattern happening again. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, We see a similar thing. Paul, once again, talking to the churches that he's planted. These are now Gentile believers. And yet in chapter 16 and verse 2, right? Well, beginning in verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so I do you on the first day of every week. Interestingly enough, when do we meet for our gathering? The first day of the week. This is why we call it the Lord's Day. This is Resurrection Day. This is the day that the Lord rose from the dead. The first day of the week. Not the old system, not the Sabbath day. Now it's the first day of the week. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, and I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, the first day of the week. So this pattern runs all the way through the New Testament. And so when you're in John chapter 20, this is what's going on. It's the first day of the week. So here's the scene. Here's what's happening. Mary Magdalene, and as we will see in just a moment, Peter, they both are evidently at the tomb on the morning of the resurrection. 
The first time that she goes, she goes there more than once. The first time she goes was some short time before her companions arrive. The other companions, Matthew 28 tells us, are Mary and another Mary and Salome. And all of them observe that the stone has been removed. And so she takes off, Mary takes off and runs to tell Peter and John. In the meantime, the other Mary and Salome come to the tomb. Mary must have gotten there just a bit ahead of them. And they see the angel, as the other Gospels tell us. You can read about that in Matthew and Mark. And so they're frightened. He tells them, go and tell. So while they're heading back, probably in another way, Peter and John head out to the tomb because Mary had already gotten to them. They're not seeing these other two women who are on their way. Peter and John are followed by Mary Magdalene now. The second time she goes to the tomb, and she stays there after Peter and John leave. Now, when you think about that, that doesn't seem like a whole lot of proof. Here's the resurrection. Mary sees the tomb open. She runs, tells John and Peter. The other two gals are there. They leave to go tell people. The angel had told them to dispatch, so they even had a supernatural thing happen. They saw the angel, John, Peter, get back to the tomb with Mary. There's not much proof. All they know is the tomb is empty. The body is gone. Mary has seen the tomb is open. She hasn't gone into the tomb. She wants to get word to the disciples as quickly as possible before Peter and John are there, and so she goes to tell them. That's what the text tells us. Verse 2, she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. We know that's John. That's what John calls himself through this gospel. The other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. Dilemma. We have a dilemma, right? I can't do what needs to be done. I came there to finish what what was started a couple days earlier to prepare the body properly for this, this burial. I can't do that. I'm frightened. Somebody has come to the tomb. Somebody has taken the body of our Lord. We don't know what she thought. Maybe She thought the Jews had actually stolen the body for some deceptive reason. Frankly, it would make sense for them to do that since they were worried that the disciples would come and try to play a trick on the people. So why wouldn't they do it? And they would have proof. If the disciples tried to start something, they would have proof. No, we have the body. Staging some kind of so-called resurrection would be thwarted by their deception. Or maybe the Romans Maybe the Romans took the body because they thought it just ought to be discarded like all the other criminals. They maybe thought about what they had told Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Why should he be put in a grave? After all, he's just a common criminal. But here in John's text, all we know and all Mary knew up to this point, all she thought was the body's gone. So Peter, therefore... And John, the other disciples, start running. Verses 3 to 6. Peter, therefore, went forth, and the other disciple, and they were going forth to the tomb, and the two were running together. The other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter, 
came to the tomb first. Maybe he was a better runner. Maybe his sandals were tied tighter. We're not sure why he beat Peter to the tomb. Maybe he was more excited. Who knows? But he gets there first and stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Simon Peter also came following him, entered the tomb, and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there. Now remember, remember what happened before, right? After Jesus had died, Pilate had dispatched guards to the tomb. Why? Because the Jewish leaders thought the disciples would try to stage something, and so that he dispatches some Roman soldiers to the tomb. And the other gospel writers tell us that there were Roman soldiers guarding the tomb. So they were stationed there at the tomb. It was sealed with a Roman seal. That was the evidence that the king had put a lock on the door, if you will. Caesar's lock was on the door. It would be evidence of its official closure. It wasn't to be broken. But now, all of a sudden, the soldiers aren't there. The stones rolled away. The seal's broken. And the body's gone. And more importantly, anybody who is going to steal the body from the tomb doesn't take the time in the tomb to unwrap the body and leave the grave clothes behind. They would have just taken the body. They would have just opened the door, taken the body, hauled it out, wrapped it up, and they would have been gone in a flash. And curious enough, verse 6 and 7 reveal to us that when Peter enters the tomb... Not only did he see the wrappings, but the one that had been around the head of Jesus is rolled up by itself, put in another spot. Notice, Simon Peter therefore also came following him, entered the tomb, beheld the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So here's the tomb. No guards are there. The, the, the door is open. The seal's broke. The body's gone, but the wrappings are there. And yet this odd thing takes place. This odd thing has happened. The thing that was on the head of the body is now just rolled up and put over in a different place. Why would, if someone was robbing the grave, unwrap the body and then take the time to unwrap the head, fold that up nice and neat, roll it up and put it in a separate spot? Now, the wrappings are lying there as if Jesus had just passed right through them. As if you had wrapped a balloon in paper mache and popped the balloon when it was still wet and it just collapsed. The wrappings are just lying there as if Jesus had just materialized through the wrapping. And then once he had done that, he took the bandage, whatever it was off his head, rolled it up and put it in a separate place. This is undeniable proof 
This is why John makes mention of it twice here, why the Holy Spirit through John mentions it twice, that not only did John see the linen wrappings lying there, but also Peter saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth that was folded up in the other place. This is undeniable proof. And Peter, once he goes in, must have called out to John, who was still outside, just maybe looking around the corner a little fearful, because verse 8 says, So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered then also. And he saw and believed. He saw and believed. What did he see? What did he see? So the body wasn't there. He had already seen the linen wrappings lying there. But he saw what Peter saw. He saw the other wrappings rolled up in the corner. And it says here, he believed. What did he believe? You ever think about that? What did John believe? I mean, it's an interesting question, particularly in light of the fact that this is the reason John wrote this gospel. He said that over and over and over again. We've referred to it over and over and over again. In this very chapter, it comes up that he wrote this, that we might believe. Belief is through this whole thing. And here is John believing. What did he believe? What did he believe? Well, on a surface level, he first believed what Mary had told them. Remember, Mary went to the tomb and and ran back to them and told them what she was seeing. And so he believed that what she was saying is true. The tomb is open. The body is gone. Jesus isn't there. He believed that. We don't know what happened to him. He, he's not sure what happened to him, at least at the point when he believes that. But, but he, he believes what Mary said. That's undeniable to John. Jesus is gone. So at the very least, he now had proof of that. But he also believed it couldn't be grave robbery. He also believed it couldn't be somebody just coming along robbing the grave. Why? Because, like I said, grave robbers would have not taken the time to unwrap the body. They would have taken the body completely intact. They would have come in, swooped up the body, and left with it. They wouldn't have spent the time to and the 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 moments that it might have taken to unwrap the body because that was a meticulous thing to be done made no sense, completely illogical. No grave robbers ever did that. And if some, for strange, some strange reason that someone actually did do that, if it was grave robbers, they certainly wouldn't have rolled up the headpiece and placed it in another place. They certainly wouldn't have done that. So at the very least, he believed what Mary said, and he believed that it couldn't be explained by some kind of robbery theory. There's a third there's a third thing that John believed. 
He believed that something supernatural had taken place. That's what he believed. John believed that something supernatural had taken place because nothing else could explain the disappearance of the Roman soldiers. See, you thought I was going to say something else, didn't you? You thought right there I was going to say something else, but nothing else could explain the disappearance of the Roman soldiers. It had to be supernatural. Who got by the Roman soldiers? Who got by them? These were trained men. They were trained to do what they were commanded to do upon the fear of losing their very life if they didn't carry out what they were supposed to do. Remember the Roman soldiers that went with Paul all the way to Rome when they got in the shipwreck and he was shipwrecked on Miletus? Remember what that Roman soldier was going to do to himself? He's going to kill himself. Paul said, don't do that. Don't do that. We're all here. You haven't lost any of us. Remember the guards in prison? Peter was released. Don't, don't, don't hurt yourself. We're here. See, these men are trained to do what they're told to do. They certainly wouldn't have abandoned their posts just because someone came up and said, hey, we're thinking about robbing the grave. There's no other bodies laying around there as if they were killed. No one came and gave them an order and said, you must not be here anymore. John believed something supernatural must have happened. Who rolled the stone away? Who came and broke the seal? Of course, we know the answer. Right? We know the answer because the other gospel writers tell us. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the look at the grave. And behold, and behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. A geographically located in one specific point earthquake. You'd think that Mary might have felt that the night before. You would think the other ladies would have felt that the night before and said, oh, an earthquake happened tonight. I wonder if the grave's okay. You would think Peter and John felt that earthquake the night before. Not so. Why? This is a supernatural reality. This is something so localized that no one else felt it. A severe earthquake occurred. Why? Why did an earthquake occur? Because, notice Matthew 28, verse 2, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Matthew goes on to say his appearance was like lightning. His clothes was as white as snow. And the guards, they shook with fear. They shook for fear of him and became like dead men. That's who removed the guards. It was a supernatural event. Nothing else could have explained what had happened. And the angel said to the women, remember the other two women, Mary and Salome, don't be afraid. They see this angel. Don't be afraid. You don't be afraid like, like those guys. Don't be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he's lying. Go quickly, tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. The angel dispatches these other two women to go back to the disciples. 
They leave the tomb quickly, it says in Matthew 28, verse 8. They leave the tomb quickly with fear and yet with great joy. And they run and report to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. He came up, took hold of his feet, worshipped him. Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Listen, in all of these details, in all of these things that you read through the Gospels, in this parallel account that you find in the Gospels, and you fit them all together into one seamless strand of the accounting of how Jesus Christ and when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, in all of those details, nothing makes sense except one thing. Supernatural resurrection. Supernatural resurrection. Nothing makes sense but a resurrection And now John, in John chapter 20, knows it. He knows it. And now, he believed it. He believed it. That's why he writes verse 9. Because up to that point, up to that point, for as yet, they didn't understand the Scripture. Up to this point, they, they, they still didn't have a full understanding of what the Old Testament said. They didn't understand the Scriptures. All that Jesus had said and all that the Old Testament prophets had said about Jesus and had prophesied concerning His resurrection, they didn't understand. Now they do. Now they do. They didn't understand it up to this point that He must rise again from the dead, but now they do. And here's the point. Here's the point. Here's what John's driving at. Here we are, again, face-to-face, just like we have been through chapter 19. Here we are, face-to-face with believing the Bible. With believing what the Scriptures say. John believed Jesus was alive. Nothing else could explain it. He believed it was supernatural. He believed it was a resurrection. There was no other explanation. He had all the physical proof that there is. The tomb's empty. The tomb's empty. But it was all, as Paul said to the Corinthians, according to the Scriptures. It was all according to the Scriptures. Listen, brothers and sisters, it was the Scripture that was fulfilled when they didn't break his legs when he was hanging on the cross. Remember that? It was the Scriptures that were fulfilled. Verse 36 of chapter 19, For these things came to pass that the Scripture might be fulfilled, not a bone of him shall be broken. It was the Scriptures that were fulfilled. It was the Scriptures that were fulfilled when the soldier pierced the side of Jesus Christ, just as it says in verse 37 of chapter 19. Another Scripture says they shall look on him whom they have pierced. 
It was the Scriptures spoken from Christ's own mouth when they put Him in the grave from Friday until His resurrection three days later on Sunday. And it's the Scripture that is fulfilled in the resurrection. It's the Scriptures. We know what Scripture it is. We know what Scripture it is. Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Psalm 16, the psalmist prophesying about this very day, Resurrection Day. Says there, says this, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. Why? Why? Because you will not abandon my soul to the grave or to Sheol, place of the dead. You will not abandon my soul there. Neither will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. This is what the psalmist says. And again, verse 8. You see, that's the prophecy of our resurrection because of His resurrection. We will be raised from the dead. Why? Because Christ has been raised from the dead. My flesh shall dwell securely. Why? Because you're not going to abandon your Holy One. Your Holy One isn't going to undergo decay. That's a resurrection. Isaiah 53 gives us similar words. When Isaiah speaks about the death of Christ, he says this, the Lord was pleased to crush him. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, but he will see his offspring. Is he don't miss it. It's right there, right in the transition. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, but that's the transition, but that's not the end of it. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong. See, God promises that the Messiah would see those who are his that he would be honored, that he would be glorified, that he would be exalted and lifted up in the eyes of those who are his. He wasn't going to remain in the grave. It was foretold hundreds of years prior to this ever happening. And John now understands what the Scriptures say. John gets it. He believes the Scriptures. Even the Scriptures 
out of the mouth of Jesus. When Jesus spoke that his body, if his body's destroyed, he would what? Raise it up in three days. He would build it again. Listen, it's about the Scriptures. John's arguing for the validity and truthfulness of the Scriptures. It's about the Scriptures. The best proof of the resurrection is in the Scriptures. It's right here, right before us. And it's the Scriptures themselves, get this, it is the Scriptures themselves that Jesus uses after His resurrection to prove His resurrection. Think about that. We say, oh, I, I'd believe if Jesus came and, and, and was here right now. No, you wouldn't. Luke 16 clearly says, no one would believe even if someone rose from the dead. You won't believe. It's not about that. Jesus used the scriptures to prove his resurrection. You say, really? I've never seen that. Well, turn to Luke 24. Go over to Luke 24. The first day of the week, verse 1, at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing spices which they had prepared. You see, they want to finish the job. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. That's these women. And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near there, near them in dazzling apparel. And as the women were terrified, bowed their faces to the ground. The men said, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee? saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and the third day rise again? They remembered the words. And returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Remember, Judas has gone out. That's why it says eleven. And now there were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other woman with them. We're telling them these things to the apostles. And these words appeared to be nonsense to them. And they would not what? Believe them. So here they are. Ah, oh, we're not believing you. We got to run. We got to go. Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in and saw the linen wrappings only. And he went away to his home, marveling at which had happened. See, John says, he saw and believed. Peter believed. And verse 13 says, behold, two of them, two of who? Two of those who were there, two of the 11 or two of those who were there with them, with the 11, two of these are going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they're conversing with one another about the things which had taken place. Right? They heard the reports of the women. They don't believe the women. They're still perplexed. Peter and John had gone to the tomb. Ostensibly, nobody else ran to the tomb with them. They're all just perplexed. They're all frightened. These two are now heading off seven miles away from Jerusalem. They're conversing with each other. All that's been said, all that's taking place. 
And it came about while they're conversing, while they're discussing, Jesus himself approaches and begins traveling with them. Their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Clopas answers and says to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem or unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? I mean, you're the only guy who's lived under a rock. Haven't you read the news? Didn't you see the newspaper headlines? I mean, you're the only clueless guy around? And Jesus says to them, what things? <laughs> what things? I love it. This is awesome. What things? And they say to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word, in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to a sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. You see what they did? Don't you know what took place? We were following Jesus. He he was the guy. He had it all. We thought he was going to be the one who was going to deliver us. We thought that was going to be the case, and they killed him. We thought he was the guy. You see, they were yet to believe. Even them following Jesus weren't believing. Indeed, Verse 21, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. He even said he'd rise on the third day. It's the third day. And some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and didn't find his body, they came saying that that they had also seen a vision of angels who, who said he was alive. I mean, these women were, were, they've lost their mind. They're hallucinating. We don't know what's going on with them. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said. But they didn't see him. And Jesus says to them, Oh, foolish men, slow of heart to what? To believe. You're slow of heart to believe. Believe what? In all that the prophets have spoken. Oh, you foolish men, how slow you are to believe what the scriptures say. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer all these things and to enter into his glory? And what did Jesus do? Jesus begins to preach. He preaches an expository sermon, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets. And he explains to them the things concerning himself in all the what? Scriptures. Jesus uses the scriptures to prove his resurrection. The best proof we have, beloved, is the scripture. That's the best proof we have. We don't need Jesus to walk through the door. We don't need to have the linen wrappings or the shroud of Turin, as some believe. 
We don't need any of that stuff. We have the Scriptures. It's all about the Scriptures. And in John 20, John ends this little vignette, this little section by saying in verse 10, so the disciples went away again to their own homes. That simply means they went away to where they were staying in Jerusalem. We know that because the, that night they were together and Jesus shows up. He shows up in the room in which they are at. They're locked behind the doors. They're afraid of the Jews. They're afraid of the, the consequences that might happen. Once the Jews and once Pilate and everybody else finds out the body's gone, they're afraid of that. So they're locked up inside of there and Jesus shows up. See, now their belief is sight. See, sight doesn't prove belief. Belief opens your eyes. Belief is seeing. Seeing is not believing. And so the question for us is that. What about us? What is our view of Jesus Christ? You see, we have right there in our laps the Old and New Testament. We have the Word of God. We hold in our hands the best evidence of the resurrection you could ever have. Right here. We have seen how Jesus is in charge of it all. Even His resurrection. And John says in chapter 19, verse 35, I've witnessed this. My witness is true. I know that I'm telling the truth so that you may believe. Jesus said of the Father, your word is truth. Your word is truth. We have the truth. We don't have a story. We don't have a speculation. We don't have a maybe. We have the truth. We have it right here. So that believing it, we might have life in His name. So it's about salvation. This is about salvation. Paul said it this way in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You can't be saved without believing the resurrection. You can't be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection. Because you have to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Master, Jesus is King. I, I, I can't rule my life anymore. It's over. I need to repent of my sin and turn to the Lord, the Lord of all, believing in Him, believing that God in Him, He, he was raised from the dead. That you might have eternal life. You might be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the eternal penalty of our own rejection of the truth about Christ. Saved from the consequences which are eternal hell and judgment. But we have to believe. We have to believe what the Scriptures say about Jesus Christ. We have to turn from our rejection. John says the resurrection did happen. He says, the Scriptures declare it. 
and we must believe it. Jesus showed himself to others. We'll see some of those next time. This is the word of God. This is the truth. John says, believe it. Our responsibility is to believe it. And if we won't believe it, we'll face the consequences for an eternity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for proving it. For proving it in your word. Your word is true. Even if Jesus had never shown himself to the disciples or shown himself to anybody, it would still be fact. It would still be true. Why? Because your word declares it. Your word is absolute. Your word is true. Your word is never wrong. And so when we believe upon Jesus Christ, we are believing you. We believe what you declared. We believe what you prophesied hundreds, if not thousands of years before the event, and we believe what will come. We believe there is a real hell. There is a true heaven. We believe there is a place for all who believe upon you to worship you in glory. And we believe there is a place where all who reject you will be condemned forever. Why? Because your word declares it. We believe that Jesus Christ is alive today and he is coming back to for his own one day. And we anticipate that day. We don't need to see the wrappings. We don't need to see the empty grave. All we need to do is believe. Believe what your word says. Father, I pray that would be the testimony of our life. Not just in order for our salvation, but every day that we would believe what your word tells us. And that in believing, we would walk according to it, for your glory, that the gospel would be would go forth, that you would be glorified in it all. We pray these things because of our Savior, the gracious, gracious gift of a Savior. And by granting us faith, we have believed, and now we are your children. Thank you for that mercy. Lord, use us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.